0: Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you have decreed that the proclaimed word of your Son be the means by which you establish your kingdom. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you will be lifted high this morning. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you implant it in our hearts, Lord, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that conformity to, to his image. And Lord, I pray that you will save people this morning. Pray all this in the finished work of Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Back in May, many of us witnessed on TV something that hasn't happened during our lifetime for a majority of us. The coronation of a new monarch of England. Now, I, I watched most much of it, and I found it really interesting. First time in my life of thought something when England was very interesting you have this media built up for for months weeks and months and the day is finally here you see this lavish parade of entry as the the king comes in his chariot the king has arrived at Westminster Abbey he has all the royal clothing he walks in and everybody stands music is playing prayers are prayed this old and gorgeous cathedral echoes with the sound of all the music. He sits in a centuries-old throne and has a crown placed on his head. Now, we as Americans, we watch this with some suspicion, of course. It's kind of ingrained in us as, as Americans. The United States started as a rebellion against the King of England, King George. But This event still fascinates us. What we read about in in fairy tales and old stories is still a thing in modern times, even in Western civilized society. But there's something a little bit more, too, that's a little bit more suspicious for us. All this money is poured out for this ceremony, all this for a king. But we ask ourselves, okay, what is the king of England? What authority does he have? Not much. He is technically head of state, but this authority is mostly ceremonial. There's no absolute monarchy. All this pomp and circumstance for someone who really does not have much authority over this tiny bit of land, Uh, uh, population-wise large, but a tiny bit of land, tiny country. All this for a figurehead how much more so should there be for a real king who has real authority? Say one who is king over the heavens and the earth. Although our country's origins are from a rebellion against a king, we do indeed need a king. Monarchy is essential to our lives with God. Historical and present-day monarchies point to this present kingdom and future kingdom that will be established forever. However, all of us are born in this world of rebels against this true king. But why? And if we need to submit to him, what does life look like under his rule? Well, this morning we'll examine Psalm 2. Psalm 2, most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And that is on page 448 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. This song of Israel would be sung regularly as they anticipated this king to come. In fact, this song was sung by the early church as recorded in Acts 4. This song, along with Psalm 1, would be the mental background as Israel and later the church would sing uh, the other psalms as a congregation, whether they were lamentations or praises. They would have Psalm Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in mind. Whether there was, Lord, where are you in this pain? Or, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? They could look back at this psalm and remember, he's coming. Psalm 2 answers for us who this coming king is, why the nations rebel against him, and what life looks like under his rule. And we can live in peace under his sovereignty under his monarchy but first let's look at the beginning where we'll see the rebellion of us all look at verses one through three why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this song opens up with a question, a question of marvel. Wow. These people really think they've got a great plan here. They have assembled a together against who? Yahweh. And against his anointed, which is the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah or Christ. So are they serious? And who, who is this that think they have a chance against the creator and sustainer of the whole world? Well, the kings and the rulers of all the earth, all the nations, everyone from every nation, which would include Israel as well. But why would they want to rebel and come after Yahweh and his Messiah? So what do they say? Well, verse 3 tells us, they don't want to serve him. Let's break his yoke from us. So this, this is a head-scratcher. Now, I know, I know, and we all know that sin is irrational. Sin makes us stupid. But that dumb? There has to be some rationale for the nations to do this. There has to be something that they're seeing or not seeing to make them think that their plan will be executed well. Well, first we see this in the Garden of Eden. Both Adam and Eve seek to break their bonds of service to Yahweh, their, uh, the temptation by the, the serpent. And as we've been going through Genesis in the past several months, this same sin repeats itself in different manifestations and continues on through the biblical narrative. The rebellion against Yahweh and his anointed, we also see in the life and the the kingship of David. Well, how so? Well, David is also given the title of Mashiach or Messiah. He is the anointed one of the Lord, the one Yahweh has set apart as king of his people. And what happens repeatedly in his life? Well, Saul, the original king of Israel, seeks to kill him because Yahweh, through the prophet Samuel, has anointed him. Years later, David's son, Absalom, seeks to kill him and tries to seize uh, the anointing from him as if he could. So you have this pattern of rebellion and plotting against Yahweh and against this anointed one. But as we continue on in the psalm, we realize, you know, I don't think he's actually talking about David here. He's related to David, but he's not David. It's clear that this this figure is not a Messiah, but the Messiah. But how is it that these folks think they can rebel and topple over Yahweh and his king? Well, fast forward 28 generations later from David to the birth of Jesus, who is called the what? The Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach, the Anointed One, who in weakness is born to a poor family, who in weakness is the carpenter's son, who in weakness is killed by a king, Herod, and a ruler, Pilate, and a despicable criminal's execution. But why? Why is it that these folks think that they can plot against God and His Christ? Well, in their blindness, they see the anointed one as weak. They see the cross as weak. The cross is seen as weakness. The Christ seemed to be conquered when he died on that cross. Not coming out, not getting the legions of angels, not coming out from that cross. No, but remaining on that cross. The way God operates is perceived as weakness by the blind. But to those who have their eyes open, they see the glory and power of the cross, of the anointed one. The perceived weakness of God is his glory and power displayed. But only those who are his see it. The rest see it as weakness and hate it. Powerful kings are anointed with oil. Christ was anointed with blood. Kings have a crown of jewels. He had a crown of thorns. So listen, we have to, we have to remember this, pa- this message when we get to the Lamentation Psalms. It helps build a context of how we read those. When you read the Lamentation Psalms, which we will look at next week, you have to read them with cross-plated glasses, if you will. We have to believe God's glory is displayed in weakness and suffering and in the cross. His justice and mercy join together in one event. So the rebellion of the world and of you and me is rooted in our unbelief and our idolatry. We don't want to serve him. We want to serve other gods. We, you and I, come into this world transgressors of the first and second commandments. We don't believe God and we create false gods. The the idolatry is the prohibition of the second commandment, but at its core, it is self-worship. Look at all the pagan gods of the ancient world and how they are created in man's image and according to his liking. They would say, I will worship the God who gives me military success. I will worship the God who gives me fertile crops and a large family. I will worship the God who gives me success at the sea. A God of my own liking, of my own making, who likes the same things I like and looks like I do and gives me what I want. But that's only in the ancient world, right? Well, if the core of idolatry is really self-worship, then it is in all of us. Our rebellion in our Creator is rooted in our unbelief in Him and in our self-worship. We want to be free of Him so we can be masters of our own life. We want our spouse to be all about us and our needs. And what happens? Our marriages fall apart. We want, our, we want our jobs to give us ultimate satisfaction. What do we do? Well, we constantly change jobs thinking that if I just get this other one, then I'll be happy. The church does not give me what I want It fill my needs. So what do we do? We'll leave it for another and then repeat that same cycle again and again. Because our lives are so centered on us. We are re- rebels against God because we want to be God. We are self-worshippers, and we struggle with relationships, whether that be in marriage, in the workplace or family or in church, because we are self-worshippers trying to work together with other self-worshippers. We get mad when we don't get our way. So we leave to go to another place or to another person, thinking it's going to be different. So we quickly discover that it isn't. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Cain, just like the Israelites. The list goes on and on. We are enthralled with ourselves. Before we know Christ, every aspect of our lives is in rebellion against our maker. For those of us who know Jesus... We battle, we continue to battle in these temptations to rebel. We recognize that it is still in us, and we hate it. We hate it because the Spirit of God hates it. We hate it because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. We know the wrath of God was poured out on our Savior because of our sin, and we no longer want to live in that lifestyle. And this rebellion, this is important to remember, this rebellion is inside of all of us. It is not just out there. And again, how has God dealt with this rebellion? He's dealt with it. How has he? Well, that leads us to the next section. Yahweh's response to us all. Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The stupidity of this rebellious people is is comical. Now, the laughter described here is not concerning the judgment. That's important to remember, but the description of laughter is in response to the comical stupidity of the the rebellion of humanity. It's so dumb, It's, it's comical. However, the mood dramatically shifts here. God's burning anger is stored up for these rebellious ones. And how does he respond? We saw what the, the people said. Now Yahweh speaks. And he gets the final word in this psalm. And what does he say to them? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now this is a reference to Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. This king will rule from Jerusalem. Looking forward to the new Jerusalem described in Revelation. But okay, so why, why is this frightful? Well, from this post, this king will execute judgment on all the earth. For those who are his, they will enter into his eternal glory. But those who continue in the rebellion will stand before this glorified king one day, and they will give an account. Once and for all, perfect justice will be executed. Now, again, that's an important point to remember as we go through the Lamentation Psalms. Specifically, what are called the imprecatory psalms, ones that call for God to bring about judgment. The king has heard. The king will execute perfect judgment, justice for his people and absorbing the punishment for their sin, while one day he will execute perfect judgment on all those who continue in their rebellion against him. All sin is dealt with either on the king himself or on the rebels. But brothers and sisters, I have no fear of judgment. I have no fear when Jesus comes back. I look so forward when Jesus comes back and establishes his role. And so do you, I hope. Why? Because Jesus died for my sins. I've believed on this gospel, and one of the fruits of this faith is assurance of his pardon. He has died for me. And I hope and pray that you have that same assurance as well. It's not based on anything in me. uh, It's only based on what the king has done. And that's important. That is our assurance, not in what I've observed in my life, but uh, by observing what Christ has done. And only that, I look to Christ for what he has done, what he has paid for, for my sin. That's my assurance. God has dealt with my sin justly and mercifully. This is justice. God is the justifier, the just one, and the justifier, all who trust in Christ. Now, think, think about society today. We like the idea of justice, we really don't like justice. Again, this is what sin does. It makes us irrational animals, really and truly. We get angry at injustice in the world. We see it on TV and, and in social media, wrong things done in the wrong way and nothing being done about it. We see marginalized people being oppressed. We see murder, etc. But at the same time, we don't like the idea of punishment. Regulation, laws, police, military, resti- restitution, the thought of an eternal hell, the thought of a Savior who receives the punishment for our sin. So I guess we just like being angry and don't want resolutions. I don't know. I can't figure that out. But God has set his judge on his holy hill, and he will reign and bring judgment when he comes. Justice will be dealt with. It will be perfect. But who is this king? And what will he be like? Well, that leads us to the third section, the Messiah's response to us all. Look at verse 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay. So now the anointed one speaks. The people spoke. Yahweh speaks. And now the anointed one speaks. And he opens up with this decree. Now what is a decree? Well, it's an official order by a sovereign. This right here is a public declaration. That's important to note. This is what Yahweh has publicly ordered and declared. And what is this declaration? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now it's important to remember this is a declarative, public decree. Why remember this? Well, Jesus, the, the Son of God, is as the New Testament writers inspired by Yahweh have said, he is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus is eternal. No beginning or end, the Alpha and the Mega. He is one with the Father. He is Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's never been a moment when the Son was not. He has always been and always will be. So what what is this today I have begotten you language then? Wouldn't that imply that he does have a beginning? Well, again, remember this public decree at the beginning of verse 7. This is coronation language. Yes, he has always been and always will be the Son of God, but in time he has been declared among the nations the Son of God. Think about Matthew three seventeen when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. The Father declares publicly from heaven, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in Matthew 17, 5, at Jesus' transfiguration, the father says, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It wasn't like Jesus was not the son before he said this, no. But it was the public declaration of his sonship. The mystery of ages has been revealed for all to hear. Now, because of this sonship, what is the son's inheritance? Look at verse 8 again. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, this king is not just king of Jerusalem, not just king of Israel. No, he's king of all the earth. Yahweh and his anointed rule the heavens and the earth. There's not one Adam in all that there is that Jesus is not the owner. He will judge these nations as we see in verse 9, but he is also the savior of all the nations. Saving a remnant from every tribe and tongue. And how does he do this? How does he accomplish this this kingdom building, this conquering of the nations? Well, think forward to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus, who is called the Christ, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice that language. Directly from Psalm 2. Then what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So, how does Christ accomplish this? How does He expand His kingdom? By giving His authority to the church. This is a command to the church collectively. As we see in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, this language is in coordination with the exhortations and the authority given to the church. That's how Christ established and grows his kingdom through his church, through churches being multiplied throughout all the lands. Okay, well, these, these organizations, this, this establishment of these assemblies throughout all the lands, What is this message mean? This mission message that they're supposed to proclaim. Well, from Psalm 2, look at it. This is something we all have to understand from Psalm 2. As we see here, there has, there has to be a mediator between God and man. There's such a chasm between God and us that it is impossible for us to come to him without someone in between. This psalm cannot be talking about David. David was a sinful human being just like me and you in need of a Savior. This can't be talking about Solomon. Solomon was a dreadful sinner too. It has to be someone talking about someone who is indeed Yahweh and also a human king on the earth. Who can this be? It is our Lord Jesus of course, God and man and one person, he who is both judge of all the earth and the one who receives the judgment that is due on all the earth, the begotten Son of God. And if you know that if you know Jesus, you are a child of God, not begotten like the Lord Jesus, who is indeed one with the Father, but you are adopted into his family. And because of this, look at this passage again. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So look at the the son's inheritance here. All that is his, believer, is yours. Of course, this is obviously not the case right now, but one day it will be. This is where our hope is. This is where our hope lies. Everything, everything that will be under his rule, we will be reigning with him. You own nothing now, but one day we'll own everything through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this inheritance isn't for everybody, but anybody can have it by the will of the Father, through faith in the Son and this King. And this leads us to the fourth section here, the psalmist's. Exhortation to us all. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. now we're in the final stanza of this glorious song the psalmist speaks here with an exhortation to all the kings of the earth and all of us for that matter the kings are representatives for the people how do we escape this judgment how do we avoid this crushing wrath that will be poured out on the final day Well, we heed the psalmist's wise words and warning we joyously submit to yahweh by adoring his Son by taking refuge in Him. We serve Yahweh and rejoice in Him. How? By kissing the Son and taking refuge in Him. This language, going back to this a coronation language, this language of bowing down before a king and kissing His feet. This is Mary. Remember, Martha and Lazarus' sister. She, she anoints Jesus with this costly perfume and wipes His feet with her hair. Why does she do, do this? Because she believes that Jesus is the anointed one. He is Yahweh's king. And you notice the, the final line of this psalm. It, it sounds familiar, doesn't it, if we look back a few weeks ago. Well, it's the bookend line to Psalm 1-1. If you remember from a few weeks ago. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but this says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see how the Psalm 1 and 2 work together and they book in together. But who's this him? The anointed one, Messiah, namely Jesus. All who rest under his canopy of righteousness are blessed. But look at the, but looking back at the first Psalm, you see the characteristics of the one who takes refuge in him, this Messiah. The one who rests in him has an insatiable desire for his words. They want to know him. They want, the way to know him is to know his words. They know his grace. They take refuge in him. But in all this talk about the wrath of the Son, which the majority of the psalm is, is talking about, this wrath to come that's through this king, through the Son... Yet you see here in this last line, this abundant grace. All, all who come to him, he will not cast out. All, all who come to him will not have a speck of his wrath. All who come to him will not be broken by his rod of iron. All who forsake their rebellion will notice that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you believe this? Do you really? In all this, you see the sovereignty of God here displayed. We like to talk about the sovereignty of God, that He is Lord of all the earth, He is master over time and space. We believe in sovereign grace. But do we really? We may believe it in theory, but how does it really affect how we live? Are you filled with anxiety? It's me. Are you a control freak? Me. Do you feel like you have to manipulate situations in order to make sure things are right and in order? Me too. Abraham and Sarah, as we've been studying the past few weeks, they believed in the sovereignty of Yahweh in theory. But as we see, they felt like they had to manipulate situations in order for God's will to be done. And guess what? We are just like them. And What's what's interesting about the characters and the people in the Bible is we uh, relate to them not in a, we look up to their example. No, we look at them because they're just like us. Uh, we only have one hero in the Bible, one to look up to, and that's Jesus Christ. But it's just interesting that we're just like them. But Abraham and Sarah and all these that try to manipulate situations, guess what? What happens? There are consequences for them. But truly believing in the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the, the kingship of God, is walking according to his revealed will. It's not doing nothing, but walking what he calls us to do today and leaving tomorrow for God to handle. But also, do we really believe that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? The foolish, remember, this is talking about the the foolishness and the stupidity of these these rulers, these peoples, these nations. These foolish rebels in verse 3 wanted to break his yoke from their necks. But his yoke is easy. He's gentle with us, his people. But do you see when, when it says, serve the Lord of fear and rejoice with trembling, and you, you think in your own mind, man, I have to do everything to the glory of God, so I, I can't mess up. I, I have to do this or that for my taskmaster, I mean, I mean Jesus, or he'll be angry with me. He, he is ready to beat me with iron. He's ready to punish me. Now, Jesus is our Lord and Master, but He is not a tyrannical taskmaster ready to beat all of His followers. He is our loving and gracious Savior. He is kind and gentle. We serve a kind and gentle Savior who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is wrathful to those who reject the gospel in their rebellion, but for all those who receive his gospel, he receives as brothers and sisters. So believer, God's wrath is no longer on you. His displeasure is no longer on you. He doesn't have a task list that you have to complete each day. His task for you is to believe him. Believe his word. The doing of his word comes from believing it. We live by what we truly believe. So, Psalm 2 teaches us that Yahweh reigns in heaven and earth through his king so believers can submit and live with confidence in the one in whom they take refuge. With that said, we must submit to the one who rules the nations and to the means by which he conquers. And how do we daily submit to him and his means? Believe him. I'm not just saying believe in him. Believe him. Believe his words. We as a church must believe him. We can't kiss him or pay homage to him if we don't believe him. We can't serve him joyfully with trembling if we don't believe him. To take refuge in him is to believe him. When he says, do not worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, believe him. When he says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares, believe him. Believe him. Now, church body, when he says, make disciples by baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, and that he will be with us as a church until he comes again, believe him. The local church is the embassy of his kingdom. Why do we plant churches? We want more embassies of the kingdom. Is Christ the ruler of all the nations, of every people group, of every province and state, of every county and community? Then that place needs embassies of the kingdom, i.e. local gospel preaching churches. How do we as individuals change our mindset of this? How do we as a church change our mindset of this? Well, we get out of our self worship and what we like and what we want in our comfort zones and worship the king and go about his business, letting our lives reflect his lordship, his kingship. Because again, we don't think his yoke is easy in his is life, but it is. He's gentle and kind. The way it can be scary but we trust the one who holds our hand every step of the way. Christ's monarchy is not ceremonial like the king of England. It is actual. It is cosmological. It is eternal. It is good. He is a kind and gentle king. Come to him. Bow down to him. Believe him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the king who has come, is coming. And we look forward to the day in which you will be manifested. You will be revealed. You will be revealed in all of your glory and splendor. And Lord, that is a day that is not of dread us we, we we long for this day in the midst of of, of a life of, of pain and suffering and injustice Lord we long for the day which everything will be dealt with, everything will be completed, everything will be fulfilled, but Lord in your in your goodness and your mercy in your kindness you have given us. Appetizers, you get us tastes of your, your kingdom. We're thankful for that. Lord, this, this world, the way it currently is, is not our present home. Um, we know this. We cling to this as, it, as if it is, but it's not. But we look forward to our future home, of which you are bringing with you soon and very soon. Lord, may you be master and Lord of every aspect of our lives today, this week, and this month. Lord, um, or break our rebellion. That even the, the old man that's in, our, in us, Lord, break that continued rebellion in us. That we may be full servants of you. Our kind and gentle king. In Christ's name, amen.